Welcome back to part two with the Dean and Alex, the Books Boys. Woo! Whoa, baby! So, where are we at? I have read... And this one is actually not available until September. I managed to secure it on a pre-order. Um, and I got an advanced copy. Lucky um, you. This one, well, you you covered a Dickens last month, and I just it got me got some Dickens fever. And you know, we we always have our slogan, keep calm and read your Dickens, uh, one of our books boys slogans. I read a book about Dickens. It's called Immortalized to Death by Lynn Squire. Um it's just coming out in September, and this is about the death of Dickens. So Dickens actually appears in pages one and two, and he dies oh. immediately. So it's not a biography about him, necessarily. No, it's a murder mystery. Oh, okay. But a lot of it is based on actual events. Um, So there's a girl, Georgina, who is Dickens... I think he's actually her sister-in-law, but relative, let's just go with. And, and, and essentially a kind of I don't want to say housekeeper because that makes her sound like a servant, but she's there kind of running a lot of the household establishment. And her main job is to protect Dickens' uh, reputation. Mm. And Dickens dies, and there's some scandals. There's a hint of scandals. There was a love affair at one point. There's even a hint of a potential child uh, having been born of that. And this other relative turns up after 20 years of not being seen, Dunstan, and he's a, a likable chap who, he's a bookkeeper, you know, and he comes in, he wants to help out, and she says, you know, well, Dickens died while writing The Mystery of Edwin Drood. It's not finished. And she gives mm. him busy work. She says, go and read that. See if you can find some clues. Maybe that'll shed some life into his death. Because they get it put on the death certificate that it was a stroke, but they think he was actually poisoned. Oh. And the notes for Edwin Drood, along with some letters, go missing from his desk. So there was a, bur- a burglary and a poisoning. Um... So then they go on the investigation. So it's not actually a Dickens-style book because it is a murder mystery. And Edwin Drood, which was incomplete, was Dickens' first attempt at doing a mystery book. Um, Wilkie Collins appears in the book, which is fantastic. I, I love Wilkie <laughs> Collins, Dickens' deputy. Is he the one who did it? No, if only. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice. Some characters are very Dickensian. Um, they go to a school at one point, and the schoolmaster's like, you know, I'm teaching that we, I don't know if you know about this in, in uh, England, we, we refer to learning the three R's. And the funny thing with the three R's is only one of them actually starts with R, so it's reading, writing, and arithmetic. Oh. And we call it the three R's. But this teacher's like, I'm going to teach you different three R's. And it's going to be like religion and writing, but writing spelt the other way. Like, I'm going to write their wrongs, you know, and it's very much oh. like a strict kind of you know, take right out of a Dickens style um, book, you know. And then there's this kind of orphanage type place where these two people are just very Dickensian type characters as well. And there's some fake entries in the books about children. Children just dying everywhere because they don't really care. Like, yeah, bring all your kids into the orphanage and we look after them and all they really want is, you know, getting a few quid and just let the children die, basically. And then there's a gang of kind of thugs going around. I think it's Dinky Diker, I think, is the name of the guy who runs the gang. But then there's these... Not even close to as good as Bill Sykes. There's there's like a... 
brains and brawn type uh, duo, you know, like a big, stupid, tough guy and, and a little smart guy who's the brains <laughs> of the outfit. And they go around getting up to shenanigans. And then there's a guy pretending to be a lord. Um, oh. But he's really, you know, knobby scrivens, the, you know, local nobody. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of fun bits going on, a lot of Dickensian type characters. Um, but the main story is is plot driven, and it is about investigating this murder. There's an inspector, Len. Uh, he's helping with the investigation. Somehow, he's just happy to tell this chap Dunstan, like, just get involved with him. Which happens in all these old books as well. It's like you know, there's no like confidentiality of the police. It's just like, yeah, this private citizen can just like come and assist us. You know, yeah. that trope you just gotta lie in in a lot of books. Um, I, I really enjoyed this one, actually. It's so nice to read oh. something about Dickens. And obviously, there's a little note at the end, how much is true and how much is fiction. And a lot of it is based on true stuff, you know? Uh, and I wasn't aware of any controversy around Dickens' death, actually. But uh, it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. And it's a fun all. read. It's about 350 say, pages. I read it in a day. Couldn't put it yeah, down. it sounds like it was a very fast read by the way you're describing it, so... Oh, yeah, I have to check that out. It's 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 fantastic. Well, once it's available to the public, I mean. Yes, guys, um, it will be available in the next few months. So just uh, do you want to give the name of it again and the author? So it's Lynn Squire, that. immortalized to death. Bear with me a second. I think we're oh. getting a a second phone call. It's highly unusual shenanigans. Hello, you're through to Books Boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? This is Lynn Squire. Lynn, wow, that's a nice coincidence you should call in. Just as we were talking about your book, Immortalized to Death, I've just been uh, talking to my friend Alex all about it. Um, How are you today? I'm good, and you? Good, we're good, thank you. Lynn, I was very thrilled to read this book because um, if you don't know, Dickens is my all-time favourite author. (laughs) Oh, okay, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, but go ahead, okay, go ahead, please. Yeah. So I, I loved your book, first of all. I, I really loved it. Um, as I say, I wanted to read it as soon as I, I heard about it, because I've, I've loved Dickens anyway. Um, and I think I read this in one day. And it's not a it's not a, you know, a super short book. It's 300 odd uh, pages, but I just read it from start to finish. I just couldn't put it down. So um, I guess that's a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It was um, I knew I was going to like it just when I kind of knew what was going you know the idea of the book um so essentially we're talking about the death of dickens and uh, my my beloved favorite author does appear in the first one two pages maybe <laughs> yeah we get rid of him pretty fast i'm afraid yeah he he sadly passes away at the very at the very beginning and then i suppose the rest of the book it's kind of a a, a mystery vibe to figure out the the meaning behind it and, and how he died and w- was it all legit and I suppose the idea is that it it wasn't that he was robbed and killed. Um, Lynn, tell us a little bit about your interest in Dickens and why you wanted to write this. Ah, uh, well, I, when you said you he was one of your most favorite authors, I I had to think for a minute how I would talk about this because, to be honest, I find Dickens's books sometimes. Uh, a little long-winded and and, and wordy. Yeah. <laughs> because um, anyway, that's his style. And uh, he had these marvellous, sprawling stories, and he introduced the world to all these wonderful characters. 
But for my taste, and it's purely personal, he does go on uh, a little bit. And the reason, I think, is because uh, he doesn't sort of organize his books around a plot. Uh, he's, his stories are driven by his characters. Think of Pickwick Papers, right? It's, yes. it's just about this... There's, there's barely a plot at all in Pickwick. <laughs> right, it's just these adventures of these people as they move around, which is great and a great story. I like plots. So uh, the thing about Dickens and his death was that he was halfway through The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Now, this was, uh, this did have a plot, <laughs> and it is the first mystery he ever wrote. He's told the reader that this uh, sinister choir master at Cloisterham Cathedral is plotting to do away with Edwin Drood in the title mm-hmm. uh, because he wants to get rid of Edwin, who is fiance, fiance of Rosa Bud, and Jasper has this mad obsession. Rosa. It's a delightful young lady. So it's set up, uh, the story, the the mystery has been set up, and Edwin actually disappears. At that point, Dickens dies. So, you know, the reader is left hanging, wondering what the heck happened. Did Jasper actually kill Edwin? Uh, If he did, how was he captured? So that's, you know, there's this terrific interest in how the book was going to unfold and what would happen. I worked out how it's going to unfold and what was going to mm-hmm. happen. That's what. So it's more my insight into what Dickens, what I thought Dickens was going to write, rather than my love. Of yeah. Dickens writing so, itself. Do you think you've got it right? You know. Do you think that? Uh, or is it just you decided on a route that worked for you? Well, I, I tell you. Um, I, of course, I think I've got it right. <laughs> there is, I, I came across one clue when I was reading it, which did not seem to have occurred uh, to anyone else. And just to give you a little bit of context, there's been numerous attempts to work out oh, yeah. the conclusion. There was, uh, now, some of them are really very clever. There's one which is a Sherlock Holmes pastiche. Uh, Others are absolutely absurd. There's one called The Mysterious Mystery of Rude Deadwin, which (laughs) I have no idea what that (laughs) is about. But the point is, uh, there was a tremendous interest and a bibliography, a 600-page bibliography, which was published in 1998, listed almost 2,000 attempts Oh, goodness. Wow. I clues in the first half of the book to see what would happen in the rest, to figure out what would happen in the rest of the book, and to find out, was Edwin murdered and was Jasper brought to justice? Mm-hmm. And this interest has continued even into the 21st century. Uh, there was, a, it may have been on, on, at the West End as well, but it was certainly in the, on uh, Broadway, there was a musical in 2012 about uh, the mystery of Edwin Root, in which the audience was supposed to guess the ending. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, and the cast were then acted out. There was a, a big TV production over here. We have something called Masterpiece TV. I don't know if it's on in, on in the UK, but that was a show, uh, a six-part series about okay. the story. 
There was even uh, a one-day academic conference in the Senate House in London in 2014 devoted to this. So there's been tremendous oh. interest. So my first thought when I came, stumbled across this clue was, well, someone else must have thought of it, surely. So I wrote up the evidence that I had and I submitted it to a, a journal that comes out of the University of Kent, which is called the Dickensian, which mm -hmm. not surprisingly is all about Dickens. And so I submitted it to this journal because I knew then some of the most famous Dickens scholars would be looking at this and would get a really, really rigorous scrutiny. Uh, scrutiny complete. They thought it was a genuine contribution to the debate surrounding the mystery of Edwin Drood, and it was published in uh, nice. 2012. So it, unless I'm getting into too much detail, I can tell you what the clue was. Oh, please do. Okay, I will tell you, but please do not tell anyone else, okay? <laughs> um, the, the clue arose from the way John Foster uh, described the outcome of the book. Foster was Dickens' literary agent and his lifelong friend, and he wrote the first biography mm -hmm. of Dickens, a 900-page monster. And he claims that what happened was that uh, an engagement ring, jewels, jewels were diamonds and rubies, was found in the waistcoat pocket of the decomposed body of Edwin. And this, these jewels, which obviously didn't decompose, they were still fine. Mm. They, they were to lead to the identification of Edwin's body and well, eventually to Jasper's capture. Well, according to Dickens' timeline, this ring, which is very, very valuable in both terms of sentiment and money, would have to have remained in Edwin's waistcoat pocket for several days. Now, would you really keep a ring, mm. priceless ring in your waistcoat pocket for that length of time? So my thought was, no, he wouldn't. No, ring course. would be somewhere else. But if it was somewhere else, it wasn't on his body, uh, then nearly every single continuation of the story would have started off from that wrong point. Mm. Okay, well I, spotted. Well, maybe, maybe yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, having the ring now somewhere else, that opened up a new range of possibilities for the solution. And I fastened on one which stayed true to what Dickens had written in the first half of the story, 100% true to that. Two, avoided this awkward, I think it was a three or four day period when the ring is supposed to be in Edwin's pocket. And three, uh, reflected as best I could the tendencies that Dickens has in the way he writes stories and the way he brings them to conclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that became my plot and eventually turned into uh, Immortalized to Death. Nice. And we see, you know, you mentioned John Forster, the, the literary agent and biographer of Dickens. You know, he appears in your novel um, along with, for example, uh, another favourite of mine, um, I call him Dickens' deputy, uh, good old Wilkie Collins. 
Um, yeah. So it was, it was lovely to to see him. What's your take on Wilkie? Do you prefer him to Dickens or no? Well, uh, I mean, the, the stories I've read by Wilkie Collins are genuine mysteries. And uh, I much prefer that style of writing or that focus for writing to what um, Dickens mm-hmm. typically did. The mystery of Edwin Drood, some people say, is uh, a reaction by Dickens to, to the success of Wilkie Collins, yeah. who was almost his protege. I was going to ask you that. Do you think there was but, direct influence there? Well, I think so, yeah. And I must say, he did, Dickens did send, set up a very intriguing tale. Uh, so that's, I think, what's made it so exciting for so many people to try to, to finish it off. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we have the parallel in the story of your book, Another Ring, and we have Dunstan, who's kind of noticing this parallel. There's a ring involved with my real-life mystery, as well as the Edwin Drood mystery and he's using those kind of clues and he's going from A to D and, and putting everything together. So it's very, very well crafted. Um tell me a little about Georgina then. Um you know she's a wonderful character and I don't want to give any spoilers about kind of what <laughs> happens with her at the end. Um we 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 like to kind of talk about the first half of books. You know, we don't we don't really like to spoil the ending for anyone um with any books that we review. But but Georgina's a wonderful character because all she really wants to do is keep you know, keep Dickens' name out of the mud, you know, no no controversies, no scandals about affairs or, you know, other illegitimate children or anything like that. She just wants to keep everything on the on the above, uh, on the up and up, as they say, um, for Dickens. So that's a very interesting character, and it's interesting to think about her motivations then. Yeah, uh, I, I think you've put, you've put your finger on it. I mean, Georgina was devoted to Dickens, uh, she was basically his housekeeper. Um, well, it's more than a housekeeper. I mean, she re- she did run the house, but she was his hostess at events. She was also a literary advisor for him. She was a constant source of, of support. But above all, her role in her life, as she saw it, was to protect Dickens's reputation. Mm. So when Dickens separates from his wife, uh, he falls for a, a young actress. Uh, he meets her uh, at a theater, he was in Manchester, a year later. He's left his wife. The actress is like 18 or 19. Yeah. Dickens is now nearly 40, so it's a, you know, he's almost twice her age. But anyway, she does her best to hush all this up Obviously, the separation is public knowledge, but the secrecy around the uh, the mistress continued and, in fact, went on for 60 years after Dickens' life. Nobody mentioned it. It was just a few friends who knew about it. Georgina obviously knew about it, and she made sure that nothing ever got out about it. Mm-hmm. She lived till she was about 90. And so this... It must have been like 30, 40 years after Dickens died, you know, her life went on. She's devoted all that time to making sure nothing ever came out that was negative about Dickens. She reviewed any letters of his which were going to be made public, and they're all scratched out where she didn't like 
like stuff. So the big thing about her was that she was not going to let anything interfere with this man's literary standing, no matter what. Mm. Sounds like she did a good job, a very thorough job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what happened was that uh, uh, a diary of Dickens was found in New York about, it was about 60 years after his death, which right. kind of revealed... It all came out then. Yeah, what was going on with his mistress. But for 60 years, that was kept secret. Mm. It's astonishing that it was covered up so well for so long, but then I suppose everything comes out eventually. But we have Georgina, she's fantastic. We've got we've got Dunstan, who's kind of I, I think he's my favorite in a way, because you know, Dickens kind of didn't really speak to him for a long time. He hadn't seen um Georgina in I think it was 20 years, was it at one point? And he just comes along anyway and he's like, I'm gonna help out with everything that's going on. Um maybe he's enamored by Georgina a little bit, but he just jumps straight in. His only bequest is the ink pot, and he just takes this as a great honor. You know, he isn't given any money. He's like, I've I've been given this ink pot. This is fantastic. And I'm gonna I'm gonna treasure it. So he's he's a likable guy, I think. Yeah. Well, uh early in, in the story, I think it says something about he uh Dunstan wanted to be a, a writer. And Dickens absolutely says, there's no way you can be a writer. He <laughs> really dumps on the poor fellow. And, uh, yeah, Dunstan's pretty diffident, so he really goes into his, uh, he disappears from the scene altogether. And uh, when he comes, oh, sorry, uh, he's still, though, despite getting dumped on, he's still really, really taken with Dickens and Dickens' mm. works. And he is a distant relative of, of Dickens. So when he comes back, uh, and this is really just the, like the day after Dickens, or the, excuse me, the day of Dickens' death, he comes back and he comes to Gadshill Place, which is where uh, just Dickens' home. And he's talking to Georgina and they, they meet and they haven't met for 20 years. Subsequently, Georgina is the one who persuades him to look at the mystery of Edwin Rood to see if there's something which suggests who killed um, who killed Dickens. And the, yeah. reason, the reason she does this is because she thinks it's impossible to solve that mystery. And silly old Dunstan will be locked up trying to work this out. The rest She's trying to get rid of him, essentially. She wants to move him <laughs> off to the side because Dick, uh, excuse me, Dunstan's idea was to go around and interview all the family and interview the uh, other authors who knew Dickens to fight to learn something about the the mis- about the murder. That was the last thing Georgina wanted because it would just stir up everything, which is exactly mm. against her wishes. Yeah, she gives him busy work, I suppose, which she thinks is going to lead nowhere and which ultimately uh, leads everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, she gave it to him because she thought it was dead end work. Yeah. And, um, you know, he sees sees it through. And of course, we also have, um, I suppose, side characters, if you will, but we have the, the maid Dulcet and Isaac and their story, which is fascinating as well. And then we have some very Dickensian type characters, the baddies, if you will, who kind of the thuggish types going around. And they are, they could have been, transported immediately from a Dickens novel, I think. Um, they're fantastic as well. 
You mean the um, the people running the foster home? The, the, the people running the foster home and um, the guys who get involved, who they think have stolen the envelope from Dickens' desk. Um, all those guys, all the other characters, essentially, yeah, they kind right. of come right out of a out of a Dickens novel. The the um, the brains and brawn type duo as well. You know, um, they're they're brilliant. Yeah, I must say. You've read this very, very carefully. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I, I I loved it as I say, and um, and I love to see the, you know, although it's a mystery, although it's not your typical, it's not modeled after a Dickens novel, but it's nice to see. Oh, there's a couple of characters here and there who would have would have fitted in nicely in a Dickens novel, you know. So that that's very nice to see as well. Yeah, I the um some of them like uh, you may not remember this one, but there was the the cook at Gadsill Place yeah. and the two people who run the orphanage. I wanted to bring a little bit of humour in uh, as, as well. And they were the like, conduits for, for doing that. And uh, it's, it's not meant to be a humorous book, obviously, but uh, I do like a little bit of humour in my mysteries. It's the, it's the best way to do it. You know, a little bit of humour here and there lightens up any book and certainly does no harm. But that whole kind of dinky Dreiker and that whole gang, they're, they're, they're fantastic as well. I don't want to go too far. You know, we've got an inspector involved. It, it does become a, a big kind of mystery, but I don't want to go too far in terms of the actual plot. Um, but you do stress at the end, and it's quite funny because you've mentioned it already in the interview, but you stress at the end of the book, you know, unlike Dickens, this is plot driven, not character driven. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, the characters are brilliant as well, but they're, they're, it is plot heavy, which is which is good. Um, yeah. May I just make a comment on that? Which um, Dickens did give a lot more structure to his novels late, later on. Uh, sure. Pickwick, the Pickwick Papers is, in a way, an extreme example. Uh, and he started writing notes for the novels before he began writing. I think the first one was for uh, Dombey and Son in, uh, I think it was 1848, that came out. But, and this is the point I wanted to make, the notes for The Mystery of Edwin Drood survive. But they only go up through the first half of the story. Mm -hmm. The notes... Uh, he, he should have been 12 installments so that the notes for the six published installments are there. The notes for the second six have installment numbers at the top of each page, but were otherwise completely blank. So um, I don't think Dickens was trying, was willing to sort of give anyone mm. a roadmap <laughs> to how the novel was supposed to end up. Yeah. And I suppose the thing with publishing in serial form and in installment form was um, he might not have always necessarily known how novels would end himself. You know, he might have had the first half in his head, gauged public perception and, and tweaked things here and there, which is a, something that authors don't really have the privilege of doing anymore, I suppose. Nowadays, we tend to here is the complete novel and, and you know, take it or leave it. Yeah, uh, I must say it's, it's quite possible that uh, he was still debating what the ending would would be. Mm. A remarkable thing that I thought when I was uh, 
when he understood exactly how he wrote these books was that he did have to write them in installments. Uh, every 30 days, he had to come up with something which was ready to go out in uh, the next issue of the magazine. Uh, absolutely amazing how he could do that. He, and I think the only way, way he was able to do it was because he was such a fluid, natural writer. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a, I slog. I write a little bit and I go back and revise it and so on. I could never have lived with those 30-day deadlines. Like very few people could could do it. I, I absolutely. Yeah. It's an interesting way of writing. You know, it's something that we people don't do really anymore, but it's uh-huh. it's stressful. And then it it takes someone like Dickens who can just write so loquaciously and verbosely yeah. to just churn it out constantly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, look. I'm going to ask you, before we ask the final question, would you like to just plug your website or, or tell people where they can get the book? Well, uh, I do have a website, which is called linsquiremysteries.com. And uh, obviously the, the website does talk about my books, but also the, the idea of the website is to spread information and knowledge about some mysteries which have just come up, which I really like. So... You know, I'm trying to showcase some of these these other books as well. Mm. As far as uh, my book is, is concerned, uh, uh, Immortalized to Death, it'll, it'll be published in September, on September 26th of this year. So it's probably already available on Amazon for, for pre-ordering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since you've given me the opportunity, I did want to say that this is the first of a series of three books about Dunstan. Ah, uh, yes, you didn't you know that. In- right? No, I did not know that. You've got me intrigued. Yeah, so the second one is called Fatally Inferior, which, uh, again, Dunstan is obviously at, at the centre of it. And again, we have this tension between Dunstan as a not yet typical detective, in fact, far from good detective material, encountering mysteries which really seem almost unsolvable. So mm that tension which runs through all three of um, the books. Uh, so that one will come out in September 24. It's already written. And the um, third one, and listen carefully to this, the seance of murder. Uh, not the science, the seance. Okay, the seance of murder. So uh, is it, it's set in uh, that time in Victorian England when Spiritualism was a big movement. People were hold, holding seances all over the place. And uh, this one, Dunstan is in an even more dire situation because um, he's trying to expose the murderer to the uh, Crenshaw, to the murder of the heir, to the Crenshaw baronetcy uh, before he himself is killed so it's a right. little bit more excitement there and that one and that one's not fully written yet but it's scheduled for publication in september of 25 so that's thank you for the opportunity to share no, about those books I, unfortunately it's going to be a year away before i can read the next installment but i i can't wait <laughs> because they, they, they sound fantastic the whole the whole lot um thank you so much for calling in lynn uh, it was a pleasure to have you on and any I loved your book, but also any chance to talk about Dickens is one I'll, I'll happily take. 
Um, the last question that we ask, we ask every author who calls in, I'll ask to you now, um, if there's any book that already exists that you wish you'd been the person to write, what would it be? <laughs> well, um, I, I have quite a few favourite authors, uh, but if, if I only have to pick one, then, and I, I don't want to go back to, you know, books of long ago. So one which is really still quite current, I would pick uh, The Pale Blue Eye by Louis Bayard. Uh, now, he, he's, he's an American author, as I'm, at, I'm sure he's available in, in the UK. But this was uh, a really fascinating story. It was set in, it's a story of revenge set in uh, West Point, And uh, it has a really remarkable twist okay. uh, towards the end of the, of the story. And why I liked it was what it did have a strong plot and a very original plot, but also it was written extremely well. So that would be one I would suggest if you or others are looking yeah. for something to read. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's always good to get a recommendation as well. Lynn, thank you so much for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Well, there we are. Uh, fantastic stuff. But uh, a second author calling in uh, this month, Lynn Swire, thank you very much. And we really, really enjoyed what well, I really enjoyed, Immortalized to, to Death. Oh, yeah. That that sounds really, really cool. I'm looking. Do you know when it's coming out? I don't know the exact date, but it will be in September at some point. In September. So I think you can pre-order it uh, on Amazon and stuff already. So you'll be able to pick it up, hopefully. Lovely. So we're we're back. Um, it's part two. We're we're here. Um, I've done my trip. We've 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 really broke the bank, and Alfred has joined us for a second uh, recording session. There he is, looking very smug with his big payday. Um, <laughs> Alex, you're still over there chilling in the Playboy Mansion, and um, I'm just back from a ten day trip uh, all across northern Spain. Took in some concerts, museums, Galicia, right across Asturias, Cantabria, Basque Country. Navarra, um, La Rioja, so a big trip across there. And so if you um, just went across the northern part of Spain, essentially, he doesn't yeah. know that. <laughs> across the kind of six regions along the north of Spain, yeah, um, minus one, m- minus uh, yeah, you could you could go as far as Catalonia at the end, which I didn't do, but um, I did the Camino de Santiago in reverse, essentially going the opposite direction from everyone I met. Um, but I had, I had a good time, and we're here to talk about the last couple books that we we read this month. Yeah, I read a second book. Be, you read a second book, which is be proud uh, of me. groundbreaking territory for the co-host on the podcast. Yeah, I was about to say, had PJ <laughs> ever done that? Yeah, I think it has <laughs> happened. Um, I uh, bought two more. A cat so, in the hat and... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A couple of Dr. Seuss's. <laughs> Why don't... I've got two, you've got one. So do you want to go in the middle? I'll do one, then you do one. Sure, we planned this. Yeah, so I started... Hey. I officially got back from Spain like nine hours ago. <laughs> so, sorry, like 15 hours ago. So, yeah, I'm frazzled. Um, okay, I read The Bonfire of the Vanities. Do you know this at all? Like, it's 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 kind of American culture. No. No, you only had told me a little bit about it in passing. Okay. 1987, uh, set in Wall Street, New York type stuff. Basically, it's similar to American Psycho. Mm. Uh, which, for anyone interested, 
after two years of promising it, I will do a movie podcast crossover with two chicks talking flicks this week, and we will review American Psycho. But this is Bonfire of the Vanities. It's a similar vibe. Imagine if it was just not as good. So I, I can, I can. Yeah. It's it's really hard to get to that level. Yeah, take out the kind of things that make American Psycho special, especially the movie version, right? Take out like the kind of musical aspects and the almost colorful, almost camp kind of aspects to it. You know, take out the fun, basically. I mean, yeah. To be fair, Christian Bale has so much charisma in it. You kind of love him and for the first time you watch the movie you even said like oh he's the bad guy yeah i, I genuinely was shocked <laughs> that's like this yeah. seems like a great guy i have no problem here yeah so, he's just so charismatic this is uh there's a guy sherman mccoy he is your he works for pierce and pierce which i literally think is the same company from american psycho and <laughs> he's um yeah, yeah they're, they're doing right. stocks and shares and bonds and and whatever you know wall street people do um it's a long book. It's like 700 pages. It took me a long, like a good year to pick it up because I just thought, is this going to be boring? Do I really want to read this? Um, I will say that I enjoyed it. And to be honest, I don't normally love American literature, but I did like this. Um, I'll give it the thumbs up. It just lacks that little... For, if you forget about American Psycho and you take it on its own, it's not a bad book at all. Okay, So Sherman McCoy, his problem is he gets a little mishap. He's actually not a bad person. Okay, he's not like a murderer or any crazy thing like that. Um, he's trying to live a simple life. The only bad thing he's really doing is having an affair. Okay, so he's having an affair with a girl called Maria, and he gets in big trouble at the beginning of the book. He goes out, he rings up his uh, mistress, and accidentally rings his wife instead. And he's <laughs> like, "Ah, oh, Maria," and his wife's like, "Chairman, is that you?" He just hangs up and goes back home and plays it cool, kind of you know, saunters in with a whistle. Like, was that you on the phone? Wait, what? No, I didn't know anything about the phone. <laughs> So yeah, 70s, so no caller ID. Yep, gets in trouble for that. Um, of course, it turns out, you know, the mistress has got this penthouse kind of suite that she takes people to. She's got other guys going there as well, you know. But they have their they have their little relationship. Um, one of the big, big themes of the book, though, is racism. The interesting thing is, none of the main characters are actually racist. But it's more that they're afraid of being perceived to be racist in this kind of 80s USA. So what happens is they go out for a drive in the Bronx and they take a wrong turn. I think they didn't plan to be in the Bronx and they accidentally, basically the, the car stops and these two black kids come over and they say, do you need some help? And they're thinking, okay, either these guys are genuinely trying to help us or they're going to come and mug us. So the stereotype kind of plays in. Yeah, that so, is a bit of racism there. Though, but to assume that they didn't know either way, you know? And the thing is, they get in the car and they drive away. But the girl drives, not Sherman. And she accidentally hears a little ding as she drives away. And he says, did you hit one of the kids with the car? Hmm. And she's like, ah, we don't know. We didn't see it. We didn't hear it, you know. And then, of course, the kid gets hit with a car. And it turns out that one of them was planning on robbing them. But the other one, the one that got hit, of course, was not. He was just a good guy. They even portray him as a kind of honor student, you know, struggling with a tough life, trying to do better than the area he's from. He's from the projects and that kind of stuff. And he's trying to, you know, his family are trying to like improve the situation. And there's a guy, Reverend Bacon, who's really, really championing um, the kind of perception of black people in the community. So he gets on board with the case and it becomes like a massive, massive, you know, statewide scandal. 
everyone's out to try to find who did it. The thing is, McCoy's not a bad guy. He first of all, he wasn't driving the car, and secondly, he says we got to go to the police. Like we might have hit someone with the car, and she keeps saying, you know, it's my decision. I was driving. We don't know for sure that we did anything. You don't want to get in trouble for your affair. Shut up. And he's really worried the whole time. And he keeps saying, I really think we should go to the police. Like, I really think we're making a mistake here. Of course, it all comes out in the end. And he's the one they go after, not her, because it was his car. Sure. Yeah. This this sounds a little bit like the premise of that Spanish movie you showed me. Where they accidentally oh, kind of yeah. kill someone and then put them into the lake. and Contra Tiempo. Yeah, the, the Oriol Paolo film. I suppose there's actually some similarities there. In a little, that sounds little bit, very yeah. interesting, yeah. I like but that. What's essentially happening is the police are doing their job just fine. So this is what I mean when I say there's no real intended racism. The police are treating the case just like they would treat any other case. The problem is Reverend Bacon's stirring up this idea of they don't care about a black kid getting killed. you know, or He doesn't even get killed, sorry, but he's, he's in hospital uh, unconscious. And they think, you know, if this had been a, a white kid hit by a black driver, it would have been a big scandal, uh, which is probably true to an extent, you know. So they make it a huge scandal and they really, really play up the racist angle. And then because of that, the, you know, the police and the detectives and the mayor especially, they're like, oh, I'm for re-election. I can't let anyone think we're being racist. So we've really, really got to go to town on this guy. And like, he's, you know, he's going to get jail time. He's going to get in big trouble. Even though the guy didn't do anything, you know, it's almost like he he's the scapegoat now for like the racist pressure cooker that's building up in the city because we can't let anyone think we're going lightly on him. Because of course, he's a rich Wall Street guy as well. He's not just some poor white guy who walked in off the street, you know? So yeah. it's this idea, millionaire in his Mercedes, you know, it does a hit and run on some some black kid and doesn't care. That's the angle they're going with. So did this book made you feel for a rich person there, Dean? <laughs> uh, no comment. No, the, the interesting thing is I do feel for all parties because, of course, you got the per-injured kid. you got his mom who's worried sick. The only person I don't really feel for is, like, the judges and the what? mayor. Because, oh, okay. the, you know, they're just like, we got to get reelected. And, you know, the mayor's getting booed and he's getting jeered by, not just by black people, but, like, by Jews, by Hispanics, like, a lot of different groups who do not like him. So his whole thing is, like, I've got to fix this kind of racist perception, you know. doesn't really matter about the truth or who gets screwed over. I've got to look out for myself, essentially. Um, and the judge wants reelected as well. So he's, like that's going to look into how the kind of case plays out. Um, and of course, Sherman gets taken from his fancy, you know, $4 million apartment and ends up having to spend a night in prison. And, and he's like horrified at this change of events. Meanwhile, Maria, the mistress, she's just gone off to Italy for a while and she does eventually come back. But interestingly, even though she admits the whole time and she he has a, a recording of her saying that she was the one driving, they say, yeah, but you took that without her permission. So that can't be admitted as evidence. And without that, um, we think you were driving, so you're going to go down for this. It's like, that seems really, really unfair. Yeah, that definitely does. And he keeps saying, like, they can't do this, can they? And he's like, yeah, they can. Like, unfortunately, that's how the, the court system works, basically. And there's yeah, a lot of unfairness. Any way they want. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of unfairness with the way the legal cases are done. There is this underlying current of racism, but there's also the underlying current of sexism, right? It's got that 80s vibe, like everyone's having affairs. They go to these parties and it says no one invites mother. We invite like, you know, hot blonde, hot leggy blondes. No one wants to invite the nice woman who reads bedtime stories to their children. You know, 
and it's it's that kind of vibe so it's got these 80s undertones of sexism racism maybe even homophobia that whole thing it's all in there you know um but you know it was very enjoyable apart from the bits where they just do talk about the stock market it's like here's a whole page (laughs) of just like extras unnamed extras shouting about bond prices it's like cool is that gonna happen often oh it is right (laughs) Well, at least you realize when it comes up, you can skip to the end of that page. Yeah, essentially, yeah. And that's that happens. Like, in, inevitably, with a 700-page book, there always does tend to be little bits that you can skip here and there. And it just, I'll say that in the next book as well. You, you know, just skim through a page. Like, okay, nothing really happens here. Let's get on to the next bit. Um, But it's interesting that no one, everyone's out for themselves, mostly. But no one really cares about justice. You know, people care about getting re-elected, they care about the public perception, the cops care about, we've got all this pressure on us now from like the district attorney or whatever, so we've got to do a more than thorough yeah. job, we can't be seen to be favouring this millionaire. No one really cares about like morality yeah. doesn't exist. You know? Hmm. Everyone's a bad person in a way, yet yeah. not everyone necessarily is either. I think everyone's not a great person, but no one's being deliberately bad either. They're being self-centered and they're being uncaring and they're, you know, they're worried more about publicity and the news uh, and that kind of stuff rather than doing the right thing. But no one is out to deliberately harm anyone else either. So there's a lot of moral gray area, I think. Um, Fair enough. And, you know, some of the stuff that happens, for example, they've got an actual criminal and he's just sitting in there just chilling out, eating some food, watching TV. And they've got a witness who they've ch- the police have just chained to a desk by the leg. And the guy says, why on earth is the witness chained? And they say, well, look, this guy's the, the perp, right? He ain't going nowhere. But this guy's a witness. You know, he could just leave. We can't keep him. So we've got to chain him up in here. <laughs> you know? Makes so, no sense. I think the idea was the, the guy who did the crime, I think he was going to give some information or something like that. So he was happy to be there. You know, he's a routine kind of thing. He's probably in and out of jail all the time. Whereas this witness, you know, he could just leave the state and then they can't go after him. So they were mistreating him by chaining him up in the office, in the police station. So there's a couple of little bits like that that would almost be funny if you try to not think that it's horrible, right? <laughs> yes. Um, that is kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. And, you know, there's also bits where there's this, there's this reporter, Peter Fallow, English, and he goes to the school to find out about the kid, gets hurt, and they explain, look, you're English, so you're probably, you know, expecting some kind of standardized test level or something like that. He's like, look, these kids, if they can read and write by the time they leave the school, I'm happy enough. You know, he was a decent kid in the sense that he didn't cause trouble, basically. And that's really all we want at, like, these schools in the Bronx, you know. He's not going to go to university. He's just... If he keeps himself out of trouble, that's a success, you know. Um, but they still paint the kid as an honor student anyway, just for the publicity and everything, you know. But some of the funny parts as well are the British and Americans don't really like each other. And a lot of the upper class people are British. And they're like, you know, the American will say, like, this is a good kid. And he's like, you mean fellow. I'm not on board with the American idea of calling children goats um, by calling them kids, <laughs> you know. So there's like little bits like that, you know, little snipes at each other. Down to yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. There's also just random stuff. There's a guy who calls himself Herbert 92X. His surname is 92X, somehow. And he... Elon's grandson or something. You know, there's a whole big part about his case, which is irrelevant. But it's just like, well, you get to see the lawyers in action and the guy Kramer do some stuff. And it's like, cool. 
I think we could have just cut this bit, you know. So this this could have been cut down. Um, but all in all, I'd say it's a good book, and it's well titled as well. Bonfire of the Vanities, like it is about everything. The guy, the guy is essentially living this kingly lifestyle, and then it just all gets effed up by the end, you know, and everything falls apart. The affair obviously comes out, so he things don't go well with his wife, and everyone's so selfish because as soon as he gets in trouble, his employer is like, "Yeah, you shouldn't come back here. Uh, you were our best salesman, but you know we want to disassociate with you." The fancy apartment he lives in, the head of the residence agency is like, "Yeah, we think you should move out because it might bring bad publicity to the building." Like, all his friends are not friends at all. As soon as he's in trouble, they're just like, you yeah. got to distance yourself from us, even though you've not had your trial yet, <laughs> you know? Um, normally, I don't give a spoiler for the ending, except it is actually unclear whether he goes to jail or not. It kind of ends at the critical moment. The That's book doesn't nice. give us the ending. <laughs> you can come up with it yourself. Like, what yeah. do you think happens? Do you think that he's... Uh... <laughs> I think he went down for it, to be honest. And it's a shame because really it should... I mean, yeah, he withheld information or whatever, but the woman was the one who actually did it. Um, She gets off scot-free. Nobody is interested in her. And there's... Yeah, looks less good, I guess, in the papers. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know why they thought, like, they couldn't prosecute a woman for a violent crime or something. Maybe there's, like, a sexist angle playing in there as well. But... No one's interested in her at all. And even when he tells them and has recordings of her admitting it, it's like, yeah, this is inadmissible. So tough luck, man. Is this New York? Yeah. Well, I was looking up uh, this law yesterday. Uh, Apparently it's a one uh, person. uh, What's it? One person consent. Is that the name of it? Anyway, only one, one party has to give consent to be recorded. Right. Yeah. So, the way they do this is they say something like you can record yourself and the other person, but you can't have a recording that a third party made. And they go into lots of distinctions and they have to lie about where the recording came from and all this kind of stuff to try to get it like admitted to the case. And then what happens is the bail gets set and the bail ends up getting set like ridiculous amounts. And then there's a retrial and a mistrial and it's because drags on and on and on, you know. And it doesn't seem to go anywhere for a long time. And then it just ends. But, you know, overall, I liked it. Good to hear. Good to hear. Moving on to my book. Your turn. So you said last time uh, in part one that, yeah, you'd never done a horror book (laughs) before. Uh, Well, here's number two. So I read Dracula. You read the ultimate horror, right? The fantastic, the gothic stereotype, the horror book. It really is, yeah. Probably peak horror in everyone's mind, right? You have that in Frankenstein. Like Mary Shelley might have even... I haven't read Frankenstein, unfortunately, but um, I don't know. She might have perfected it. Uh, I think think? this is better. You think this is better? I do think this is yeah, significantly better, actually. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but for Dracula here, it's very different than what I had expected for the story. Because I feel like the version I saw as a kid was you go to the castle and the entire story is at the castle right. trying to survive there. And then you try to take out Dracula at the castle. This is done as a diary. And it's 
starts off with Jonathan Harker. He goes basically as a lawyer trying to, I guess, sell property or help uh, Count Dracula get property over in England. Um, and mm-hmm. he gets trapped, uh, eventually escapes after injuring the Count. And then you get to move on to other diaries. So his fiance. Then you also have a doctor who's doing research with this, um, like, insane, like insane patient. Um, then you also have yeah Renfield. Yeah, Renfield is an interesting character. Um, I liked seeing more what the doctor thoughts of Renfield than the other people. Mm-hmm. So, did you know all of these characters? So you've obviously no. got Abraham Van Helsing. You've got um, Jonathan Harker. Um, Renfield is the insane patient. Some movie versions I've seen combine Renfield with, I think, with Van Helsing, which was madness. Like I, that makes very, no sense. It makes no. I've seen versions that just conflate characters to make the book easier, and it's just really crazy things happening. Um, you've also got Mina, isn't it? Mina, yep, Mina and Lucy. Lucy, so yeah. Mina is uh, Jonathan's fiance. Lucy is Arthur's. Ah, uh, Lucy Westernra, isn't it? think you're right yeah yeah uh she's to get married to arthur she actually has uh three different suitors arthur the doctor i just mentioned and an american quincy that's right quincy jones isn't it i think so yeah quincy is a weird character because they're just like his character is american (laughs) (laughs) and i guess even at that time uh there were stereotypes like yeah, uh, I'm going to get some Winchesters over here so that we can take out Dracula and stuff. And I think they even give him some of the some of the way of talking. And it's like, okay, Americans into guns. Has this always been a thing? I love <laughs> I, it. I guess so. I, I do love it. Um, yeah, for a lot of this, Jonathan going over to the castle, it has such an amazing gothic setting. Mm-hmm. Really funny point early on in this, though. He sees the Count leaving the castle after he suspects something's up. The Count leaves the window, crawls down the side of the castle headfirst like a lizard. And I'm trying <laughs> to picture this in my mind. And then he's just going like headfirst with his like tail coat going over his head. Like doing it in a suit. Yes, it's such Spider-Man-ing a Spider-Manning of it. Yes, or down it, down it. Were there bits that I can't remember? You know, it's been seventeen years since I've actually read the book. I've seen lots of movie versions. Not all the stereotypes are present, right? Like he does call wolves at one point, um, but he doesn't control he calls... bats. I don't think he, he doesn't turn into, into a, a bat. bat. He does. He does. Okay. He does. Yes. Uh, so he's. Um... They don't specifically say, but there's bats that are often like uh, hitting against the window for uh, Lucy's window. Okay, and those bats are probably him because they have the same red eyes. He's also able to control rats, which That's is a bit right. freaky. Um, and of course, this... you kill him by it's the stake in the heart followed by cutting off the head, right? Yeah. So the way they did it, yeah, they stake the heart, cut off the stake to leave it there, so it can't like grow back cut off the head, and then put garlic into the mouth. Yes, that's right. But everything is in here. They have so much lore that... uh, That was my favorite chapter, Van Helsing going into the different lore, the powers that he Mm -hmm. had. Um, He talks about, like, yeah, he can turn into mist and change into bats and become really small. Or he can't travel over, like, uh, high tide. 
stuff like mm-hmm. that. But you can travel over running water. They do mention that part. There's a lot of lore. I mean, I think this is fantastic, right? Technically not the first vampire story because we have Camilla, also by an Irish author, but this is the, yes. uh, by, by Sheridan Le Fanny, but this is this is the ultimate vampire story, right? And for, for me, vampire, yeah. you know, I always liked them more than anything else, more than monsters, werewolves, you know, mummies, anything like that. Vampires had this certain kind of elegance to them because obviously with Dracula being a kind and living in a castle, right? They just had this kind of specialness. There's a romance and a, and a, almost a almost a sexy aspect to them. There's something special about vampires for me. Yeah, and I, I, for the first two thirds, you have a lot of how to say mystery around the count. He's not really there a lot, except for the first few chapters, mm. like journal entries. After that, he kind of disappears, but you find out that he moves to London and uh, eventually turns Lucy. You don't see a lot of this. You just know that something's going wrong. Lucy's mm. going like sleepwalking and then she's losing a lot of blood. We have no idea what's happening. Imagine you know nothing about vampires. You just be like, what is going on? What is going on? This is something really creepy is happening and you don't know what. I've never understood this. If he bites them, they eventually die. But if he makes them bite his blood. him, then they turn? Yeah, they have to drink okay. his blood. Cool. So he opens up his chest and has them. Yeah. Um, Look, this is a distillery, and you weren't expecting that. You weren't expecting it to be letters and, and diary entries. And I things. wasn't. I suppose no one is. But it was, was it still okay. Pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. And so I will say that first two thirds is really really good. There's mystery to it. You have a ghost ship basically arrive. You said you didn't like this part, but I. Yeah, I was going to bring really that up. I really enjoyed it because you get. <laughs> You get all these entries by the captain saying, yeah, everything's fine on day one. And then we've had some people disappear. And then now my like first mm. mate jumped off the ship. And then he's like, I'm going to make sure we get to port and ties himself to the mm. wheel and just shows up dead. At That's like, cool. In England. I like but- that. And then a wolf comes off, which is the count and sure. runs away and. I think I didn't like this bit because I generally don't like things set at sea and I, you know, ships, submarines, anything like that bores me. And okay. also the main characters aren't in this sequence. So I was like, I don't care about these sea people, you know? Yeah. I was like, this doesn't really matter. Then I realized, no, it actually, it actually does. But I liked it as well because it, it wasn't long. It really was maybe 10 pages, okay. five, 10 pages. So it, it was really good. Good. The issue is the count didn't wasn't intimidating for the last third. He lost all intimidation because the last third is him running away. Right, okay. It's just like, oh, um, you guys destroyed my boxes. I don't I still I guess the boxes have dirt that he's allowed to sleep in and transport himself to. But it the last third is like, we're gonna find these boxes. We're gonna put these wafers in them so he can't use them anymore. And then he had one left and then runs away to Transylvania. And then it's a kind of spoiler. They defeat him. But defeating him was the second to last page and two sentences. Oh, wow. Right. So we spend 100 pages going through all this and then two sentences just to end it. So And I I didn't 
love that. This first, isn't what you expect, was is it? Like you don't you don't realize that a lot of it's going to take place in England. You kind of think, as you said at the beginning, they do the stuff at the mm-hmm. castle, and then it's this big. You know, a lot of time will be devoted to hunting him down and killing him, and big, fantastic mm-hmm. moments with the stake mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, maybe that didn't play out the way it does in the movies. I guess. No, the movies. I mean, yeah, some of them just ignore the book completely. But I I still enjoyed it. I, again, like the first two thirds were riveting. Mm-hmm. I was able to get through them super quickly. It was that last third that I'm just like, right, we're going to spend 100 pages on a ship, following another ship, hypnotizing Nina because she was about to be turned. And it's like, okay, we can we can get to the end now. Yeah. But you know what? I will say that it, for something written just before 1900, 1897. It is Victorian literature. Yeah. It holds up very well. It's a great yeah. novel. And it's my favorite. We were talking about this before we, we came on recording. It's my favorite Irish novel. Like, you know, I, I, I think it's very good. Um, mm-hmm. There is in Dublin a plaque. I don't know where, but I've seen it. A plaque to um, Bram Stoker. Also, when I visited Dublin Castle, they mentioned that he used to work there just as like a functionary, <laughs> like an account type, you know, book, whatever, going through the. And he tried to write a book about his job, essentially, before Dracula. And it was like terribly boring and no one was interested in it. It's like the day to day, like workings of my kind of bookkeeping job. And no one was interested in that. And it's like, oh, how about I do a vampire from Transylvania? Like that could be something more interesting than my job. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone is surprised to hear that Dracula is a good book. <laughs> no, I, ho- I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. But I would say, like, go in uh, just open because it's going to be different than what you expect mm. at first. And I do think you should still, like, keep with it at the very end. It's kind of like sitting through a three-hour movie. Like, you, you can really enjoy a lot of it, but it does drag on near the end. Yeah. How does it read? Like, I find it a tricky read. That's because I was 13 when I read it. Um, mm. And, it, you know, Victorian literature it was it was tough. And I remember it being very long, but it's probably not that long, is it? Like a standard 300-page kind of fare? So minus 350 pages with quite small prints. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, okay. So it it, it could go over that if it could be like bigger. four or 450. Yeah, yeah. fair. Um, I don't under... Just a small thing. I don't understand how the chapters work out. Because the chapter starts Jonathan Harker's journal and then in the middle of that chapter it'll change to another person's journal right and just see a different entry <laughs> and then the next one's like okay we're gonna go to Mina Harker's journal like, okay okay so it's That's all over the place a little bit of a chapter yeah fair. I, it, it's not bad I just don't think chapters are necessary in this because it really is if it's letter journey entry. entries yeah yeah uh, anything else to say about Renfield before we wrap this book oh, up? I really should be talking about him because Renfield is a fascinating character. I love what the doctor says about him and how he builds him up because Renfield will eat living things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zoophagus, I believe is the name. And he starts off with flies and then he'll feed the flies to spiders. He'll also eat the spiders. Uh, but then he'll feed the spiders to birds i think and then feed the birds to a cat then he'll eat the cat <laughs> he'll eat the cat because that cat has consumed so many lives from the flies and the spiders and the birds mm. all in one it's like 
okay, this is fascinating. He wants to be Dracula, which is mm-hmm. crazy. And he calls Dracula his master. I I liked him as a character. He was Dracula doesn't really care for him, though, does he? He's kind of a pawn, really. He's just a useful aid. I don't know why Dracula would have any contact with him at all because nothing nothing happened with Renfield, to be fair. Mm. He just he escapes every once in a while somehow and like will talk to the count, but, but I don't know why. Did you pick up on the detail that Renfield again, I don't know if this is canon from the book or if one of the movies I've seen made it up, and that's the problem when there's so many different versions of this. <laughs> Supposedly, Renfield did the job Jonathan did, going to the castle to help with Dracula's affairs, and was driven insane by Dracula before Jonathan comes. That's at least one version I've seen. Did that come in the book? I definitely didn't get that. That might just be a movie thing. Might be something they added. It's it's very difficult. As I say, I've seen movies conflating characters. I've also seen Lucy and Mina conflated into one character before, rather than have two girls. You kind of could... Because I think it kind it could have ended after uh, defeating Lucy. You have another fifty pages going after the count. Keep it short. You don't need to double that. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. But overall, it's kind of a boring chase. Overall, you liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Good. Any ideas what you're going to read next month? Um, I'm thinking Brave New World. I'm also. Yes. I also might just do some plays for some books, boys in the future. Just sure. not a playboys thing. It's just something, something to read. Yeah. So now I mean, look, here's the thing. We do a play once a month and we're, you know, we, we go with them in stages with your Shakespeare's. We do our, um, our, our Greek ones. I've got a few Spanish plays there. And I'm just looking at them thinking I might just read these one month and just talk about them for five minutes each on books, boys, because I just want to get through them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've had some on my list for years and it's like, I should probably read that and read that. Yeah. I also bought, while I was in Spain, something called the Coyote. This is kind of like Zorro, like a knockoff of the Zorro. And the Coyote is in California right after it had, you know, moved from kind of, it had just been incorporated into USA. There's, um, he's kind of leading this Hispanic resistance almost. And he's a hero of the, um, of the Latino people. And on the cover, he's fantastic with his old-fashioned pistols <laughs> and his purple mariachi outfit. And I'm thinking, this is fantastic. And they're just little stories. They're only about 50 or 60 pages. And I bought six of them. Um, so I might just, you know, do one or two of those next month. Um, we'll do Coyote Corner and uh, catch up with him every now and again. Um, don't know what else I'm going to read, though. That works. Oh, I should mention as well that this month's episode is sponsored by a new podcast. We've never promoted another podcast before, but it's the the, the Books Boys podcast podcast. So if you ever wanted to listen to a show that reviews this podcast instead of reviewing books, um, you can check that out. Go to your local post office and you can get a facsimile transcript today. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I will move on to my last book. This is called El Tiempo Entre Costuras by Maria Duenas. It's another almost 700-page book in Spanish, and the title translates to, the t- well, the time between seams. I thought it was between stitches. It's between seams. It's essentially, she's a seamstress. Same thing, really. Um, there is a Netflix version, though. They retitled it The Time In Between, which sounds a bit nicer in English, I guess, than The Time Between Seams. Um, I like both. Yeah. So, I bought this book a few months ago. Uh, I'd never heard of the author. Uh, the book itself is 2009, um, so it's about 14 years old. The TV series is, is, is 9 or 10 years old. 
Um, I'm going to say that I liked it, but I also, I hinted earlier that when a book's almost 700 pages, you tend to get a little bit bored and you tend to skim a little bit. And that happened a lot in this book. It's... So, yeah, you messaged me earlier like, yeah, it probably could have been 200 pages shorter. Uh, No, it could have been 200 pages. (laughs) 200 pages? Okay, okay. Yeah. So basically, we, we it said in some places that we visited uh, last year, actually. There's some bits. Oh, they talk like about Gibraltar. And, oh, Gibraltar. Um, also, they go to Morocco and they go to Tangier. And then they move to Tetuan mm-hmm. as well. But there, a lot of it's set in Morocco, actually. Um, there's some bits in Madrid where I've been a lot. Uh, I think Gibraltar they talk about more than actually go to. But a lot of it's set mm-hmm. in Morocco. Did they almost get abducted by the mafia? Um, no. But they do, so basically this is set during, um, just before World War Two. Okay. So the Spanish Civil War is going on, and in Morocco, mm. there's no mafia control because at that time, um, Spain had a protectorate there and had big influence there. Um, so they're essentially okay. in a Spanish area in Morocco. Interesting. So is it Ceuta or... Is that so just nowadays, what's left of it now? that's what's remaining. Is I think there's two Theuta and Melia. I think there's two there's two towns that are left now. But at this time, it was much bigger. Um, towards the end of the book, World War Two is starting, and they start to talk about you know Nazis and Hitler and the Germans kind of get involved and and the Brits doing like counterintelligence. Um, but that kind of comes in towards the end. It's a strange book because it's about a seamstress, right? She's growing up in a poor part of Madrid with her mum. Doesn't seem like they get on particularly well at the beginning. She doesn't know, never met her dad. They're poor. And she's dating this guy, Ignacio. And she's kind of not nice to him, like, in the, in the sense that they, they're supposed to get together. And she just leaves him one day for someone else, for Ramiro, and kind of breaks his heart. And we don't see him again for a long time. And, like, it's the kind of stuff that happens, right? But, you know, he's sad about it. She goes off with this guy, Ramiro, because he's more, um... He's a a seducer, basically, right? So he seduces her. And then her mum says, by the way, I want you to come and meet your dad. And her dad's actually fairly well off and influential. And he says, look, I want you to have what should really be your inheritance by rights. And uh, here's a lot of money and like my mother's old jewelry and things. And it's worth a lot of money, but I give you advice. Spain is falling apart. Um, go, go to Africa. Good advice. It kind of was, I mean, Spain got really, really bad. Um, you've got a big civil war, of course, and Franco won it, but you had the, the Franco side, the right wing um, side. You also had a lot of left-wing stuff with communists and anarchists and everything like that. Presumably there was still a contingent of the original royal um, regime as well. So a lot of sides fighting and uh, really things went very badly, you know. And, and as the book was on, they mentioned, she goes back to visit Madrid late in the book and, you know, things are really bad. Um, the only reason Spain doesn't get involved in World War II is basically because they're wrecked after their civil war. So it's it's not a good time. Yeah, makes sense. So it kind of was good advice. They go over there, they live a decent lifestyle. She sets up, um, you know, as a seamstress again, but not through choice. So what happens is they go and they stay. They live the high life, you know, for a couple of weeks or months. And then she gets a note from uh, Ramiro, which says, by the way, 
I'm not gonna marry you. I've decided to disappear. You'll not see me again. I've also taken all your money and your jewels, and you owe several months hotel bill. Um, but you know, whatever. That's not my problem. Sweet. So okay. she, yeah, she's now stranded, <laughs> and she tra- leaves the hotel and gets arrested for leaving without, you know, paying her hotel bill. And she's got not a penny, not two pennies to rub together. Um, a jealous half brother doesn't like that she got inheritance and tries to put in a case for her stealing the jewels as well. So, luckily, the police commissioner's kind of sympathetic, and he says, "Look, I've talked to the hotel. They're gonna give you a year to pay the bill." You've got to give me your passport. You can't leave. I know someone you can stay with. Um, and you're going to have to work and, you know, save up the money. So she opens it. And the person she stays with, initially you think um, she's not going to be a nice person. Um, she just kind of seems mean almost. She's running this, like, um, boarding house kind of thing, I guess. But actually, no. It turns out she's really nice and they make good friends. Um, she's called, just look up her name, Handelaria. But they end up making friends and she helps you lend her money to set up in business. And she says, you're actually the best mm. seamstress in Morocco. Like, you're amazing. So mm. they do this big business. And eventually she meets another guy, Marcus, that she kind of falls in love with. Um, and she also meets um, a lady called Rosalinda Fox, who speaks a weird mix of English, Spanish and Portuguese. And she's living the high life. She's the mistress of the high commissioner. You know, she's going around in, in fancy cars, getting like evening dresses made for all of her parties. But they make friends and it's really nice. The problem is most of that setup happens in quite a quick period of time. And then there's kind of nothing for a long, pages. long, long stretch, you know. And it's supposed to be the time between the seams and the stitches being being done, right? But we don't actually see her do that much of her job. It's just like here's long conversations and nothing really happening for a long time. In that way, it's not well written, you know? And then it goes a bit mad. And, and it's the only way I can say it. It goes a bit mad and they recruit her as a spy. By the oh. by, by the British intelligence, she by MI six and send her back You're to Madrid. A great seamstress, <laughs> you, I I can see you working as a spy. Yeah, yeah. and she's got to go to Madrid now to like listen in on the Germans. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Completely different book. Yeah, it's a different book, but also they start things that go nowhere. So they're like, we're going to get these two young boys to live with you, so it looks like you're a mother or whatever. We never meet them; it doesn't come to anything. Oh, and, they really? talk, and they talk about all these spy signals they'll send her, like notes in the flowers. And I think we only see it once. Like they could have done so much with this, this spy stuff. It could have been an entire novel. And it's like, why is this crammed into like a little bit at the end? What, what's happening? You know, like, they weird. had an idea and then realized, <laughs> wait, I don't have enough time for this. The editor and publisher want it done by next week. Oops. <laughs> I end up <laughs> yeah. to a corner. It's just such a weird way to end. I wanted the romance story. I wanted to see what's happening, you know, with Ignacio, with Ramiro. She's involved with the commissioners and things. She's got this new guy, Marcus, and the police commissioner, her dad. I, I, I was interested in the characters. Rosalind is fantastic, you know, the high society kind of rich girl. And she's dating the high commissioner herself. So there's a lot of stuff there. And then it just stops all that. And it, it's a strange also, at one point, scandal hit. Not scandal, but problems ensue because Peter Fox, Rosalind's estranged husband, turns up and decides, I haven't given you a divorce, so I've still got rights over you, so I'm going to 
stay here and stop you from seeing your partner. And also I'm just going to drink like a liter of whiskey every day and maybe hit you from time to time. You know, I'm trying to get like wonder or guess, I guess uh, who this is for. Right. Like, those who love the love story, probably not going to love the spy part much, but other people are going to hear like, Oh, this has like a really like interesting, like spy story. Well, yeah, it, but it's like At two. End. It's two different books within just like nothing in between. Huh. You know, the middle part's really dull, and I really was was skimming, you know, and then it kind of introduces a lot of characters that don't matter, and and it just it's a decent story, but it's very strangely written. Yeah, you say you like it, but it it sounds like you like what you remember of it. Yeah. And I honestly, I think I like like the first 150 pages the best, to be honest. Um, the premise is very good. Bits of it are good. I, I like Rosalinda as well. I don't know. Sometimes it seems like it's not going. It has this weird trend of like a lot of stuff will happen in two pages. Hmm. And then there'll be 100 pages of literally nothing. And then a lot of story gets crammed into two pages again. And I don't know why it's written like that. <laughs> Yeah, written on a budget? I don't know. It's well, not bad, and I, I don't want to make it seem bad, but I did get bored at times, you know? Yeah, yeah, I get it. So it sounds like uh, this book's boys, we've liked pretty much every book. I think we've liked every book. Yeah, more or less. The odd, the odd, I mean, for example, with this one, the odd criticism here or there, but more or less, yeah, yeah. we've liked almost yeah. everything. And we've read, we've read a lot. <laughs> Yeah, we did. We did. Maybe next month we can uh, take it a little easier. I'm probably going to read one book next month and maybe a play. Fair enough. I will. Um, I don't know. I'll I'll do a couple books, but I'm not, I'm not going to yeah. be. Uh, You're gonna obviously going to be coming up this month, so I'm going to be focusing on that. I'll try to read like a book a week maximum. You know, keep it a bit shorter. Speaking of plays, come check us out on Patreon, uh, Books Boys. Uh, That's right. Patreon.com/slash/booksboys. Uh, we also do uh, Playboys there. We're currently doing the Greek theater. You might have already said this at the beginning of uh, the episode. Ah, no, it's any, well someone else it. doing the plugs. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so go ahead and check us out. Uh, we have the Shakespeare's coming out for free now, but uh, on the Patreon, we're doing the Greek plays. And That's we are right. just about to start in the next couple days. Sophocles, I believe. We'll be starting Sophocles. Um, I can't remember Rex. what we're starting with. It's Oedipus Rex, isn't it? Yeah. It's Oedipus Rex. There we go. Oedipus the king. So that's one of the most famous Greek plays, I guess? It is definitely the most famous. Yeah, okay, there we go. Oedipus the King, yeah, everyone knows it. I don't think there's another more famous one. Fair. So looking forward to that. I hope it holds up. Some of the others didn't hold up as well as we would have liked. (laughs) Aeschylus, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, he was the first. Yeah, that's... From him. He's the equivalent of Jane Austen, right? You need the kind of yes. demo that is sort of there, but not quite. And then you get the Victorian amazement. You know, that's that's what we need. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so guys, check that out. And of course, um, at Books Boys Podcast on Instagram, you've got booksboys.com. you got some links, got some music on Spotify, buy a t-shirt, tell your friends, kiss a puppy, whatever. And um we're going to end with a song. I had planned on, on ending with a, what I thought was a decent song. Uh, and then I thought, why don't I not do that? Because I many years ago, <laughs> I made a song called Here Comes Dracula. 
And I think it's terrible, but I just thought it was fitting. Um, oh, no. So if you want to hear organ and spooky voice because you talked about Dracula, then um, I'm going to play that. So it's Here Comes Dracula. And then, of course, the end credits will play. So stick around for those. And um, skip ahead to them. Skip ahead. <laughs> which, whichever, you know. If the DJ would spin that record, we'll be back in about a month. Boy. Transylvania 
as he's coming down the stairs The women gaze into his eyes And then they give themselves to him completely They've been hypnotized We must rid ourselves of this evil And so we all make a plan We must all work together and we will kill him as soon as we can. Here comes Dracula! Dracula, where's we pour salt onto the ground? We take our garlic and crosses and all gather round. We bring him to his knees and he begs for our pleas. We stake him in the heart and we cut off his head, throw it into the sea, never to be seen again. Dracula is dead! And Dracula is no more! Books Boys was presented by The Dean and Playboy Alex in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. Ah. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, the, the Books Boys Podcast Podcast. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s from the Of Soundtracks and Garage Bands EP by Trapdoor. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Marx from the album of the same name. All music used is either podsafe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash booksboys, get the show early, and all of our bonus Boofandaboy shows and you can also check out our music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends, and come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books! Oh, goodness me. I'm just back at a 14-hour bus journey at a busy day. Was that two and a half hours... Lord have mercy. <laughs>